Tyrese Halliburton was stunned, Malika. Uh, the league is stunned at this trade. First 10 for three. Welcome to another edition of the Indie Cornrows Podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. As always, before we get started today, if you have not already, please be sure to rate and review us if you haven't already over on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, which you can do over there as well. Now, um, I'm psyched to be joined by my good friend, co-host, and colleague, Caitlin Cooper. Caitlin, how are you doing today? Doing well. Ready to talk about these two kind of strange end-of-the-road-trip games, so ready to dive into it. Yeah, strange is a kind way of putting it. Um I want to hit you with a couple of rapid fire questions first uh, before oh, no. we even. I'm yeah. scared. <laughs> yeah. Well, you did this to me last time, so it's only fair. Um, w- w- just, I don't even need like a, a a yes or no. I need more of a what was your immediate reaction when you saw Miles Turner's uh, sweater thingy um, pregame the other day? Oh, funny, funny story about that, actually. I had not seen it. I usually get notifications from the Pacers Twitter account. We'll look at them, but I had Mm. not looked at any of it. And then I opened Twitter when that game started, and I just saw that Miles Turner was the number one trend, and I was like, oh, no. He (laughs) he had some type of injury setback at practice. So I was very, to answer, I was very relieved to see that sweater when I opened it up. Uh. We definitely had different reactions. Uh, I'm very excited for anybody who wants to wear whatever they want to wear. Do your style. That's not my style for sure. I'm Jim Schwartz and t-shirt guy, but um, it just made me think of the uh, like the the floppy things, like the the wind fly floppy things in front of a uh, a car dealership. Um, so that was fun. Um, but yes, other question. Uh, without checking stats. And I did not check stats either, so don't worry. I don't have the right answer. Does Gogo Pataza have the like the highest rim defensive field goal percentage in NBA history? Because I'm not sure that, that I, I would not I would not uh, not believe it if it was true. You mean highest is in he's allowing the highest yeah, percentage? Yeah. Um, I have no idea what it was. Last year it wasn't that bad, but I do agree that this year uh, there's been problems, and part that we'll get to from the Wizards and the pistons game but mostly the wizards game i'm sure but do you know what the number is oh i have no idea what the number is i'm sure it's not as bad as i think it is but it's especially I'm watching sure it's the, worse than last year now watching I feel like the I wizards to... game i was like oh my god what is happening um last last snap judgment decision which game was weirder indy i mean indiana geez well every indiana game is weird detroit or washington which game's weirder i'm gonna have to go with the wizards game yeah because I can point to more concrete reasons for why the Pistons game went the way that it did. Okay, cool. I yeah, think. I think I'm on the same page. The The Wizards game was bleh. Um, yeah, I feel like I brought this on the Pacers in some ways. Um, but then again, maybe it shouldn't be weird because I feel like it's a time-honored tradition for the Pacers to give up exorbitant point totals to the Washington Wizards. And it has no bearing on which players are playing for either team. Like, there's just going to be a high-scoring Wizard point total at the end of a game when the Pacers play them. Exactly. So maybe maybe it isn't weird. Yeah. No, exactly. I mean, I was, I was going to say, too, like, I, uh, I have a – a big affinity for this Adam Sandler movie called Hubie Halloween. Not sure if you've seen it. It's a Netflix exclusive. Um, 
not really a very timely right now considering it's in March, but I tweeted about it a lot recently because I rewatched it. One of my favorite movies, even though it's not very good. Um, and I just made things spooky by watching a spooky movie. So here we are. Uh, let's start with the Detroit game. Obviously, Pacers lose this one. Um, they lost both games, as we as we made note of. But, um, I mean, where do you want to get started with in this game? Because there's a lot to dive into. Okay, well, I'm not ready to start into it because I looked up Goga's oh. defensive field goal oh, percentage. It's bad, <laughs> and it's, isn't it? It's 61%. Ooh, that's not good. On 3.1 attempts. So now I'm curious to know what it was last year. Because I bet I bet that it's worse than last year. That's just my oh, gut. That's definitely worse than last year. I mean, there's that 60. I mean, it isn't good, but it's not horrible. it's not like woat. It is it's definitely not goat though. Goga last year was 52.9%. So there we go. Yeah, I remember it being a lot better last year. But I think a lot of that just had to do with him blocking and the fact that they were just funneling everything probably suited him a lot better than again what we'll get into later but okay the pistons game so i think that we should just start out talking about the last roughly six minutes and 30 seconds of that game if if you're up for it yeah so after the game was over and i don't disagree rick carlisle pointed out and said that that game changed it at roughly that time stamp um tyrese halliburton and his estimation got fouled by killian hayes the ball went the other way and marvin bagley had a dunk and from then on like the pacers just that kind of turned the game. Now I'm not interested in getting into ref litigation over whether Tyrese was actually fouled or not, but kind of what happened before he drove into that foul or non-foul, whatever you want to call it, I think was somewhat telling because he really struggled to shake Killian Hayes. Like he couldn't get into the paint. Haynes was, Hayes was shading him a little bit toward the left, not egregiously. And it wasn't even so much that he was trying to get back to his right. He just wasn't getting any traction, which I think, kind of speaks to what, as as efficient as he is in isolation, what you'll notice when you watch a lot of those possessions is exactly that. Like, go back to his first game with the Pacers when they played the Cavs, and by the fourth quarter when J.B. Bickerstaff started switching Evan Mobley and Jared Allen out to him, he was having to pass out of shots and wasn't able to get into the paint. And that's what happened on that particular play, and it did end up going the other way. But over those last minutes, I have the numbers here. Yeah. So the Pacers got outscored 16 to eight. They scored eight points in six minutes. They shot two of 12 from the field and one of nine from three. Um, So I think what we can easily see there, offensively at least, was that the Pistons were switching everything. They were switching Isaiah Stewart out to the ball. And I really, truly had flashbacks back to the bubble offense. That's genuinely what it looked like over roughly the last. The exact same thing. I'm sorry, that was the worst laugh ever, but like, yeah, Isaiah Stewart, like credit to him, he's shown switchability throughout his time in the league. Not, um, you know, not like a full one through five guy, but yeah, it's just they kept calling for it. And I was like, for what purpose? Like, what is this doing? It hasn't worked the entire game. Yeah, they ran Sorry, all the, no, no, completely. I mean, I, de- I definitely had flashbacks to what, what the offense was when they were in the playoffs against the Miami Heat because that's what it looked like. They were running all the action at Isaiah Stewart, similar to what they did against Bam. And then they were, it was just one screen and done. They weren't getting to the next action out of anything. And part of the problem was, is that the main thing that they were doing, like if Isaiah Jackson, there's going to be too many Isaiahs, people are going to get confused. But if Isaiah Jackson came and set a screen and then Isaiah Stewart was on the ball, it just ended up being a tough three or a tough one on contested one-on-one shot at the rim. 
And basically the only thing that they were going to, to get him off the ball was their kind of patented ghost screens where either Dwayne or buddies running at the ball. And the Pistons did what I wish more teams would do, which is if a person is running full speed at the ball on those ghost screen running slips, the likelihood of them stopping and actually setting a screen is next to nil. So just run with them. Just run with them. You don't need to switch it. So Isaiah Stewart was just like, well, you're not going to actually set a screen. I'm just going to say square on the ball. So they weren't getting him back off after they did anything. And then they weren't getting into another screen to switch him back off. And then it was just a bunch of like, I have the possessions here. Um, The first one after that turnover from Tyrese is an away screen for Buddy. It gets Isaiah onto the ball. And instead of like them trying to get into a double drag from there or like Buddy whipping back into Spain to try to distort the matchups. It just ends up being Buddy taking a quick three against Stewart on the switch. Then there was a transition three from Buddy. That's fine. Um, Then Halliburton advanced the ball to Brogdon into an ISO three against Stewart. Um, Then O'Shea got out in transition. Then it was Brogdon driving kick versus Stewart into a turnover. A Brogdon ISO three against Stewart. Um, then there was a transition junk from Jalen. Then it was another Brogdon ISO drive against Stewart, a buddy ISO drive against Stewart. And then there was the corner three from Jalen and then Brogdon rejecting a screen against Cade and then Hallie or Halliburton kind of taking a prayer. And then the last second Jalen corner three. So as you can hear from that rundown, a lot of just isolating against Isaiah Stewart. So um, the other thing that I noticed from that, or that you probably noticed while I was going through that rundown is it was mostly Brogdon. And I'm not saying it was Brogdon hunting that out. It's just that Brogdon was predominantly the ball handler. So what were your thoughts about um, that Brogdon was kind of running the offense more than Tyrese late against Detroit? I mean, I think some people will look and be like, oh, it's play. Well, I don't, I don't know. I can't fully say whether or not it's play calling, but a lot of it was Tyrese just being extremely deferential. Like he passed out of a lot of opportunities, um, both initiating from the perimeter and, on drives, which is something that'll come up even more in the next game. But like, um, I, and, and this is something that I, uh, we, I saw with him on the Kings a lot in watching him, but it's almost felt more prescient now with him having more on ball opportunities. Like he really needs to find some more aggression as a, as a shot taker, because he's, 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 as we've talked about, like he's got a just a nutty touch. Like I think he's probably top 10, top 15 in the NBA, just in terms of pure touch on the ball. Like some of the floaters he's able to make and take and craft shots that he's able to make and take are ridiculous. And it's what allows him to, to be such an efficient player. But also that's kind of the point when you have that ability, we need you to do more of it. Like I do think like there's probably some of it too, where Brogdon, I don't want to say that he calls a number a bunch, but like a lot of it was just the offense filtering to him. At least that's my read on it. Yeah. I'm a little bit different because if you look up the numbers and this goes back to the Orlando game, the Pistons game was a second straight game in a row that Brogdon's been off the minutes restriction mm-hmm. and that Brogdon eclipsed Tyrese in overall time of possession. Brogdon had 6.2 minutes of possession. Tyrese had 5.4. I felt a lot of times in the fourth quarter that, and sometimes it is Rick Carlisle giving directives. Sometimes you can listen on the game broadcast if you watch them back and you'll hear him like calling out, you know, who he wants to have the ball for a double drag. I don't know that it was necessarily so much that. It's like as soon as they took the ball out of the net, it was Brogdon getting it as primary. And the difference there is pretty starkly, Brogdon's going to walk the ball up in a lot of situations. And I'm not saying there isn't benefit to that in certain settings, but even before Tyrese got here um, 
And some of it is going back to play calling like the prior game they played in Detroit when they only scored like 10 points over 10 minutes, they weren't getting into anything quickly. And if, if you're, if their defense is shutting you down, which in that case, it was because they were blitzing Brogdon. In this case, it was because they were switching. You got to get into it quicker. And the answer to get into it quicker is Tyrese. I mean, a hundred percent, like even in the, even after the moment when they had the own goal, I forget who tapped it in. You could see Tyrese as they're looking at the guys clapping immediately, get it in. I'm racing it up the floor. And really their best answer to me of what they needed to do against those switches was to play with greater pace so that they couldn't even set up and get them just immediately get into it, get past your guy and to get into drive and kick. And I felt like it needed to be tilted more toward him. I mean, I see what you're saying. I think there's very specific spots that you can point to in about every game where, you know, he, he comes up the floor and he's almost passed first to a fault. Um, he's open and he makes an extra pass to O'Shea. That's not on its surface, a bad thing to do, but when you're Tyrese Halliburton and you can shoot off the dribble or the catch and you're above 40% and it's O'Shea taking a contested one, you got to call your own number in those situations. There's times where he needs to get deeper off of ball screens and he'll pay bail out and pass out. Or like, you know, going back to the overtime that they played when Lance took, you know, the five missed jumpers, there was opportunities where he needed to run the offense and he was giving the ball back to Lance. So I think that there is a little bit of both to it, but I don't know that I necessarily completely understand, especially in that particular game, what the purpose long-term is for Tyrese not getting the reps in those situations. Like what is the rest of the season about? I would rather have him work through some of that and teach him to be more aggressive than have him just start out possessions, filling the corners while buddy and or Brogdon are running offense. But that's just me personally. No, I would agree with that. Um, I think I probably took it a little bit on the wrong angle, but I, I agree with that. Um, it's, I mean, it, it definitely felt, especially as the game wound down, which is what was weird. It felt like they really started to like, I mean, you could see Rick doing the, him like putting his hands, his palms to the floor, like slow it down. And it was just like, for what? Like what? It, it's not working going, you know, um, you know, starting with the possession with, with, 16 seconds on the shot clock why don't we just speed it up and i agree like it was kind of weird um yeah um not great <laughs> i mean the two games are a little bit different because if we want to fast forward and look and just compare with the wizards um they weren't doing as much switching late and yeah. obviously brogdon was just absolutely torching everybody with mm-hmm. slot drives and drives of every type of variety in that wizards game i looked up this morning um, just over the last three, like, and, and, and this isn't anything Brogdon's numbers have been fantastic over the last three games. Like, I don't want it to sound like, I don't think that overall he has played well. I just think in that setting with the way that the Pistons were guarding, it might've been better to be putting the ball in the hands of the guy who plays with a little bit more pace and has a little bit, I think overall a stronger playmaking feel, even though Brogdon can run offense and does a lot of things well, but against the wizards, Um, And over the last three, nobody in the NBA has drawn more free throw attempts out of drives than Malcolm Brogdon has. So I think he had like 24 drives against the Wizards, which is just an insane number. Um, And that was that was coming off in some off ball situations as well. But the difference being is, unlike the Pistons, who did not care about any of the ghost screens, the Wizards very much did. And were getting thrown around by those quite a bit that, you know, if, if they had a switch, if Brogdon or Tyrese got one against Kristaps Porzingis and then they brought a ghost screen like they'd get confused and that was making it easier for them to get into the lane but um, even late against the Wizards game I thought it was interesting because when Tyrese came back in and they were playing together 
the offense was still predominantly running through Brogdon and Buddy. And I think you could make a stronger case for it in that game, just because, like I said, Brogdon was basically getting to the rim at will up until about the last four or five minutes when the Wizards were finally like, hey, all of us are just getting absolutely wiped. They started showing him some extra bodies, and then maybe it would have behooved them to, again, go back and run more of it through Tyrese. But I got to say that Buddy's shot selection in that fourth quarter against the Wizards, like even just aside from the one where he kind of faked the handoff to Brogdon and then drove in and got blocked by Kuzma, which was kind of the sequence of the game. And then Porzingis got the dunk. Um, He was taking some highly questionable shots, I felt, throughout. And then it goes back again of like, what's the purpose? Buddy played all 12 minutes of the fourth quarter. And... I just find myself asking a lot, like, why are like, and it's not because Tyrese can't play off ball or they can't be somewhat interchangeable. It's just that it seems like these are valuable reps and close games. When let's face it, the games don't matter that much that Tyrese could be getting to run offense in those situations and to be a closer. And it's not necessarily happening. And, you know, I I just think for long-term that, that, that would give you better return. And as it so happens, the way that it's been with Brogdon and buddy doing it, they're not winning anyways. So. Yeah, no, I, I mean, Buddy's taken 37 shots in the last two games. Um, I mean, there was the one play against the Wizards, like right at the top of the key, where I think Buddy dribbled for like eight or nine seconds and then passed the ball off with a second and a half left on the shot clock. And I was like, bro, like, I was just, yeah, yeah some and of, of his decision making was mad. And of all people, that I know exactly what possession you're talking about. He was isolating Denny at the end of the first quarter. It's like of all people on the yeah, Wizard the one guy to not isolate, isolate against. But then again, Goga did the same thing at the end of halftime. So. And he made, he made the bucket too. So <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that if you asked on my bingo card, will Goga dribble behind his back and isolate Denny for a made basket that I would have had to go cycle through a lot of guesses to get to that. But here's a fun game for you. Over the last three games, I'm going to set the line. How many players do you think have attempted more shots than Tyrese Halliburton in the fourth quarter? I'm setting the line at three and a half players. Are you taking the under or the over? Probably the over because Lance, right? It would be Lance. No, I no, mean, Lance wait, no, play. I'm thinking too far back. Um, We're talking just the Orlando game, Pistons, and last night's Wizards game. I'm going to take the over because Buddy and Malcolm for sure. Yeah. And then... Yeah, I'll, I'll take the over. Yeah, so you're correct. The answer is over three and a half players. So Brogdon has taken 20 shots in the last three fourth quarters and gotten to the line with 14 free throw attempts with zero turnovers. So there you go. Buddies had taken 19 shots. Dwayne Washington Jr. has taken eight. Jalen has taken eight. And Tyrese has taken seven shots in the last three fourth quarters. Not ideal. That's, that seems almost unfathomable to me. Yeah, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't like that particularly. If we're being honest, uh, no, I agree. Like, what is kind of the purpose here is a really great question to ask because if Tyrese is your quote unquote point guard of the future, then why isn't he being featured like the point guard of the future and getting the opportunities to, 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 to grow into that? Because like we've talked about, like there, I mean, even just. Like he's not a guy who can create separation without a screen right now for the most part. Like it's as, as we saw in the Pistons game. Um, like, are there more opportunities to try and develop that or just work on things in general or just do a lot more with him running pick and roll to end games? Like uh, it's definitely been questionable. 
Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. Cause I mean, I think that's going to be a continuing trend because I mean, I wrote my article yesterday morning talking about the bigs. Cause like, if we can just talk to flashback a little bit, if we can just talk about Isaiah Stewart a little bit in addition to what he was doing, switching out in the fourth quarter, I thought that he dominated that game and he only had eight points. Yeah. Like he is very intelligent with how he screens and not only because the Pistons are using like, call it whatever you want, the Gortat, the snake screen, the seal screen, where effectively Isaiah Stewart screens for the ball and then rolls and, and screens his own man so that you can get sealed and Cade can get to the rim. I mean, the, the Pacers never really came up with an answer for that because they were using Isaiah Jackson in a drop, which I know on the longtime listeners of this podcast are going to know that there's times where I want the Pacers to not switch the centers as much. And I think the thought process in that game wasn't so much about what they were going to be giving up to the guards on the perimeter as it was. We don't want to switch a guard onto Isaiah Stewart. So they stayed home on that and went into the drop. And then the Pistons just countered by setting those seal screens over and over again. And it wasn't that Cade even necessarily had like a huge scoring outing as much as just everything he was freeing up because he is has a very good sense for screening his own man in every situation not even just in the role like just sealing and screening his own guy so that you can create a hole when he's in the dunker spot I wanted the Pacers to do that I felt like that was a way that they could have got into the paint and created driving kick opportunities when Isaiah was switched out to the perimeter Stewart when Isaiah Stewart was switched out into the perimeter on Brogdon I mean just to illustrate an example like if you have Jalen in the dunker spot and then another player behind him in the corner. I think Tyrese was in one or two situations. And Brogdon's on that same side of the floor with Stewart. If Jalen quick jumps in and his toes toward the lane, screening his own guy, Brogdon can drive right into that space. And then the person defending Tyrese has to make a choice. Am I going to stop Brogdon trying to drive against Isaiah Stewart or I'm going to stay home on Tyrese? That's an, that's a you know, a tough decision. And that was a decision that Buddy Heald had to make on the key three that the Pistons tied the game on, because that's what um, Isaiah Stewart did. And I feel like, I mean, we've both talked about it. I think a lot of Pacer Twitter has talked about it. It's felt like all season, the big, no matter who the big is, Miles, Sabonis, Goga, Jalen, whoever, if they duck in a lot of the time, they don't get the ball. Um, Those are passes that for whatever reason, just don't oftentimes get seen or made, but you can still be using those duckins to create space to screen your own guy to seal and hold that guy off. And Jalen to his credit did finally do that on one possession late against the Wizards, but I feel like the bigs could be used a little bit more to help them with some of these switches because when you look at it like I think that this is a trend that's going to continue because it's not like they have, and it's not me trying to relitigate the trade at all, but like you don't have Sabonis in there to throw it for an inside matchup. They don't really have a reliable post threat right now to attack from a different angle. Um, they don't really have an easy way. Like I said before, they weren't getting to their next actions late against the Pistons. It was one screen. That's it. I try to attack that switch. And then it was either hit a, hit a brick wall in the lane or take a three that was tough and contested they couldn't get to the next thing with like, you know, Sabonis acting as a connector for side to side action. If that isn't there, then you have to be a little bit more creative with what they're going to be doing in those types of situations. So to me, it's either lean into the pace with Tyrese or find other ways that the bigs can be impactful, even if you aren't necessarily tossing the ball to them down low. So um, that was something that I thought also stood out. I just wanted to give kudos because I thought Isaiah Stewart was very good in that game. He was. And I totally agree with you too. Like I, uh, it's it was reminiscent to me a lot of especially because of the way people pick things apart and um like to you know talk about it on twitter like part of and not to just make this fully about the rest of the nba but like 
okay, what, what the Suns did to the Bucks last year early, you know, as, as things w- went on the first couple of games, the Suns really tried to force Brooke Lopez out on the perimeter. Um, I mean, to keep him on the perimeter because the Bucks were switching everything to try and take away some of the driving lanes. And it was like, okay, well, we're going to throw the ball around the side and then back into DeAndre Aiden. And then even if it's not for a post-up, like you have to, you have to deal with that. Like, and he's a good enough playmaker where you have to deal with it. And it's like, it felt very similar for the Pacers. Like so many times when Stewart got switched out of the, onto the perimeter, I'm like, okay, swing the ball and try and get something inside because he's not there. Like it just, it was weird. And like you mentioned with the defense too, the defense was was a lot. Uh, even only saying only giving up 111 points, like it felt like they got their heads bashed bashed in, in that last six minutes against the Pistons. Like defense was not good. Um, I I understand not wanting to switch on to Isaiah Stewart, but also Isaiah Stewart is is not an awesome post up player. Like I get not wanting to give up that matchup because it does it does lend credence to maybe having to throw two to the ball, but. He's also not an amazing decision maker with the ball. So to me, it was just they did a lot of shooting themselves in the foot, especially in that game, it felt like. I think my bigger question was the perimeter matchups. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, if if the Pistons have Kojo out there and Cade and Jeremy Grant and you have Halliburton, Brogdon, and Buddy, I'm going to put Halliburton on Corey Joseph and tell him, roam around and do what you do as an off-ball defender. Use your instincts. I'm going to put Brogdon on Kate Cunningham and hope that he can be somewhat respectable on ball. And I'm probably just going to live with Buddy on Jeremy Grant because Jeremy wasn't having a great game anyways. But there was too many possessions where Buddy was on Cade. And then, I mean, the seal screen crushed him. He got beat. Cade snaked it. He couldn't get in front, got to the rim on another key possession. And then there was one, too, where, I mean, the, the Pacers were switching other stuff because Jalen was guarding Jeremy on a possession. They switched that, got Buddy on Jeremy, then Jalen went to double, and then Cade got a wide-open three out of that. And I just think that in both situations, your preference would be for Brogdon to be in that matchup, and it, it wasn't happening enough, in my opinion. But, um, yeah. I mean, I, I appreciate that they're continuing to try to experiment with all that Isaiah Jackson could could be capable of doing on defense. And we've seen enough times where, you know, it's all matchup specific, I guess, for the Pacers right now and and when they're switching and when they aren't, because I thought not switching late against the magic was pretty key, but um, yeah, I just, I just thought that the perimeter matchups were a little bit weird over the last six minutes when they got outscored 16 to eight, but yeah, Yeah. I see what you're saying. No, definitely. if we want to transfer over to back to the Wizards game, do you want to talk about Goga? Yeah, we, we can talk about Goga. Um, so Goga Batadze had had 20 points in the Wizards game, including but not limited to a behind the back pull up two. Um, he was absolutely raining from deep two. I think he had three threes. Um, he was being used on ghost screens, which was just seeing that was kind of wild. Um, it was certainly a game. What, what did you think of the Goga experience? Yeah. I mean, I think that the two of us have been, I don't want to say harsh. I mean, I think we've just been realistic about yeah. what his struggles have been of late. I mean, I thought that the two minutes that he played in that second game in Orlando was exactly probably the right amount. I mean, he had some very cringy moments there and he came in against the wizards and did, you know, that was the most, Goga that Goga has looked maybe arguably this season and it's not because of the point total it's just that like I imagine that when the Pacers drafted him they did so thinking that he was going to be 
you know, either a spot up three threat or on the one occasion, like popping out and hitting the pick and pop three. I mean, he attacked a closeout in one situation and got to the basket that he was going to be able to do some more on the perimeter than what we've seen, given what his three point conversion rate has been. So um, that was kind of the actualized version, but at the same time, it kind of felt like a 70 degree day in February. Like, yeah. Oh, you know, that, that was a nice day, but there'll probably be a bunch of snow tomorrow, you know, type thing. Yeah. But in Goga's defense, like if you do come out there and you do what's expected of you and you play fairly well, and like, just to point out, he had the highest single game plus minus in the game, Mark. He was plus 13. And that matters. Don't <laughs> and it apparently matters. He and Kiefer, top, top plus minus, which is a whole nother talking point. But um, if you go out there and you do what's expected of you, and then you come out after halftime and the Pacers are getting absolutely wrecked defensively in the third quarter, I believe they gave up 39 points and he doesn't play until there's a minute and 15 seconds left in the third. To me, that sends a fairly clear message. Like either the rotations are just incredibly arbitrary because it's not like Isaiah Jackson was having a fantastic game. Like he was in foul trouble. That was once again, harming his ability to kind of form a rhythm and making his game very choppy because he would be in, get two quick fouls, come back out, come in, get two quick fouls. Like if I'm go, I'm sitting over there and I'm just kind of wondering, like, you know, I think sometimes when he makes mistakes, there's a quick leash. And a lot of times I get that, but then, you know, he plays well and it doesn't seem like there's as much leeway for him to stay on the floor. Yeah, no, I mean, you're, you're completely right. Uh, it just kind of like, if, how do you play that well yesterday? And obviously like, well, noting too, like some of that's just, I mean, that I feel like he could have taken a half court shot and it would have swished. Like that's, he was yeah. just in that kind of rhythm yesterday, but then that's exactly like, okay, then play him 35 minutes. Like, Maybe it ends up going away. I'm sure it does because I, I would not have expected Gogo to go like 14 of 14 from the floor. But I mean, I'm right there with you. He was playing better than 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 Jalen or Isaiah yesterday. So why isn't he playing? You know, like why not at least see what happens? It felt like he did everything that that you could have asked of him. I mean, the defense is another question, but not again, like you mentioned, not like not like Isaiah or Jalen was doing much either defensively yesterday either. So um yeah, it's it's it was, it was kind of telling. Yeah. I mean, I was wondering if after the game, if Goga would like have any cryptic tweets, like this ain't G or, <laughs> or if we were going to talk like, about how we like this ain't good. This ain't great. This is, there's a, there's a lot of G words that we could fill in there. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. This ain't P means the St. Pacers basketball. So I guess, I don't know, but, mm. um, or, or if we were going to have like a quote about him saying like that he had an effort mentality in the Wizards game and was just going to shoot every time he had the ball. Yeah. Or if, or if we would have any think pieces about how like five centers have been holding him back all this time. But yeah, I mean, snarky comments aside, I do agree with you. I think some of it just felt like, you know, him making shots versus him missing shots. But at the same time, when you are making the shots, you would probably reasonably expect that you would come in before there was like, less uh, I think he came in with like a minute and 19 seconds left in the uh third quarter and then here's the real crazy one I don't know if you noticed this I had to look it up this morning because I felt like it was happening but I didn't want to scroll through during the game and look at the play-by-play to check Jalen came in when Ajax was in foul trouble at the 7 719 mark at the third quarter he never came out again he played 19 minutes straight including the entire fourth quarter a lot of time 
that's why I said some of this just seems like wild and arbitrary to me, like 19 straight minutes. Cause I don't think I, I mean, did Isaiah Jackson come in briefly after he had his fourth foul? I don't know, but I mean, he and Goga played together for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but going back to the first half when, when Goga was getting hot, I think part of the reason that they don't rely on him is because they want to switch everything. And it doesn't make a lot of sense, especially when Kiefer and Goga are on the floor to be switching like that of, of all the combinations you could come up with on the Pacers roster, probably the last one that you would want that pairing to switch a screen on would be Goga and Kiefer, especially when Kristaps Porzingis is in a game. And they did give up those switches a couple of times where, you know, Porzingis is just going to shoot right over the top of Kiefer. Then there was one or other two moments where Brogdon was like scramming out the switches that Kiefer and Dwayne were having on, on Kristaps. And then Goga was like looking over his shoulder thinking he needed to do it. And Brogdon was like, no, no, no. Like there, there was moments where again, Goga didn't know where he was supposed to be defensively and positioning wise. And that continued when he came back in in the third and they went to some zone and the zone wasn't great. So like, I understand again, from a defensive standpoint that if they want to be this switch, everything team, Goga doesn't exactly fit that. But I mean, if we're being honest, they're not good at switching everything pretty much no matter who's on the floor. And I mean, I mean, we can even extend that beyond switching. Like they gave up a million points last night, particularly in that third quarter. Yeah. The, I mean, how many low man rotations existed last night? Yeah, like, I, mean, I mean, and that's not trying to be harsh, but like Jalen is is rough defensively right now, and that's not just to pinpoint him. Like I like we mentioned, it's all three of the bigs. But as much as Jalen has contributed offensively, I mean that especially last night the defense was really rough. Yeah, I think part of the problem is is that they, you know, I mean, the wizard- yeah, they asked him to chase over screens at one point yesterday, and I was like, what is happening here? Like. He was, it was when he was playing with Goga, like Goga was the drop was, uh, was at the five and Jalen, I think Jalen chased Kuzma over like uh, a Chicago action. I was like, what on earth is happening here? Like it was, I think sometimes it's just, it's just bad communication. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was times where they were switching ones with O'Shea and then O'Shea was ended up on Perzingis and then they were giving up action there. So that might've led to some tinkering, but I just think so much of the time they give up slips or end up with two on the ball and some of the switching situations. Then when you're playing a team like the wizards who has of late been shooting the ball a lot better with the personnel they can have out on the floor, then people get hesitate hesitate to rotate it over and help in situations where they clearly need to. But um, yeah, clearly a lot of breakdowns. I mean, it's almost to the point where like, it's hard to even analyze the defense anymore in a lot of situations because it just has so many different problems and they, they shuffle through so many different types of things within the same game. And it's, it's almost like, and again, I don't want to use the phrase phone it in, but it almost feels like they're just trying to get to the finish line with it. Like, you know, we're going to try to be a switching team. Sometimes we'll, we'll mix in some other coverages and some specific scenarios like allowing Goga to drop some rather than switching and just try to make the most of it until we can get to the summer and really figure out what we're going to do on that end of the floor. And maybe that's, maybe that's not fair of what they're actually attempting to do, but if if they're attempting more than that, it, it sure isn't working all that well. I mean, we can just put it that way. I mean, I find it completely realistic that they might end up finishing with the worst defensive rating in the NBA. I mean, they're on track for it. It's been it's been awful. Like, and I'm I'm not trying again. I'm I'm with you. I'm not trying to be rude, but it's been like they do. Do you feel comfortable with any action 
or coverage that they go through that they'll actually get a stop routinely? Huh. Um, I felt pretty good at the end of that Wizards game when, again, and some of are not the Wizards, in the Magic game when they just had the bigs dropped way back against the rim and Halliburton was being really aggressive off ball. But again, some of that was self-inflicted wounds by the Orlando Magic. I don't think I feel confident in them getting stops in most situations, if I'm being completely honest. Because, I, I mean, early on in the season, there were moments where I liked some of the I'd see them make in-game defensive adjustments that I thought were very smart or they'd try things. Like, I mean, I've pointed this one out before, but like putting Keelan on Rudy Gobert so that they could switch everything and then helping having Sabonis kind of help off a little bit in those situations. So he's not involved in that pick and roll situation because Rudy's not going to bother you in the post. Um, I thought that their zone looked better at the beginning of the season than it's looked over the second half of the season. Um, especially when they played the Bulls in the one game. And I mean, that was the second night of a back-to-back for the Bulls, but I thought that their rotations were pretty sharp in that regard. But I mean, let's just call a spade a spade. I mean, when the season started, the two goals that they laid out at media day were defense and togetherness. Do you think they've achieved either one of those two things? Not in the slightest, actually. They're 27th in defense since uh, since the trade deadline. Yeah, Not I mean... <laughs> And, and again, like we can go back and I don't want to completely rehash last year, but I think, I mean, the fact that they finished 14th made the defense look better than what it was because it was horrible over the second half of the season and, and continued to drop off. But, you know, and I, I don't want to watch that defense again. It didn't fit what roster they had. It was way over aggressive in spots. They didn't adjust it. It was on autopilot way too much of the time. And it was underbaked. It didn't look like they had really practiced many of those zone coverages that they attempted to play. But you knew what they were trying to accomplish. And I know I keep saying this, but there's just a lot of games where I don't know what they're trying to accomplish on defense other than like, hey, we have a bunch of young guys at this point. We're just going to try to switch things and try to maybe hopefully over the back end of the season, get people to understand some of those rotations a little bit better and just get to the summer. That's genuinely what it looks like to me. Otherwise, like, I mean, there's been a steep drop off these last two seasons going from sixth under Nate McMillan to middle of the pack last year, which again, kind of overstates what that actually was to now you're at the bottom of the league. And it's, I think it's very hard for young bigs to uh, execute defensively, especially when you're trying to do a lot of different things. I mean, I don't want to be too harsh with Isaiah Jackson and Jalen and Goga. Goga's had three different coaches in three years, but I think it's reasonable to expect a little bit better of a product than what we've seen. Oh, definitely. At this point. I mean, it's it's not the first game that these people have played together anymore. And I know that there's people in and out of the rotation, but uh, that just is what it is. But I do want to say one, some positive things about Jalen Smith, actually, because. Oh, he deserves positive things about him. Yeah. I didn't mean to totally. No, 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 no. no. I, I just wanted to point out that, like, just comparing him with Goga, like Goga's game was kind of more a case of like, Hey, I had open threes. I took them and I made them and other games. I might miss those exact same shots. Um, good for him that he made them. But when I watch Jalen Smith, it feels like almost every game on the offensive end of the floor that he's doing something new that I didn't know he could do. Like, I mean, you and I talked about it when he was in Orlando and he made the couple step in transition threes. And I was like, Whoa, I didn't know that you could like sprint ahead of the line or be a trailer and hit a three. And then last night he made a pick and pop three against the wizards. I haven't seen him. I think I looked on synergy and he'd logged like two possessions in the pop this so far for the Pacers. Um, he had a very physical post up against Kyle Kuzma. 
Like I had pointed out in my article that there's been a lot of times so far this season that like, if there is a switch, like he struggled to do anything against Peyton Pritchard. Um, I thought there were some moments against Corey Joseph that were kind of weird for him up in Detroit where it was like, you know, why are you trying to drive Corey Joseph off the dribble from the corner instead of backing him down? Um, He'll pass out of some face up attempts sometimes like, so to see him be that physical and like Kyle Kuzma clearly flopped, but still like he went, he got a very close range touch, used a hook shot, scored over him. Um, and then he did what I wanted them to do at late in the Pistons game. And he had like a seal screen for O'Shea late to get to the free throw line. And he got fouled and got to the line. And then the biggie, I did not know that Jalen Smith had Danny green cuts in his bag. Like he, I think it was either the beginning of the fourth or end of the third um, cut to the strong side corner on a pick and roll, which is like Danny Green's signature move of cutting along the baseline corner to corner during pick and rolls to kind of confuse the low man coverage. And he ran to the corner. He didn't get his feet set behind the line, but he made the baseline too. I'm like, that that's interesting. If he can do that, um, that's eye opening. Like, I mean, I didn't expect him to shoot the three as well as he has. And, and it feels like, like I said, every game that he's doing something that I didn't know he could do. Yeah, I mean, like you mentioned, he's uh, picking his moment. Like he definitely doesn't feel like he has the balance down between facing up and and trying to you know mix in post ups as well. If he does have an opportunity to take someone to the rim, like I think that's definitely something that's going to be a work in progress for him moving forward. But like you mentioned, like he had some real, like he had like a he showed really good touch on floaters, which I did not really expect. Like I've I've thought. It, when he was in Phoenix, I thought he had like decent touch, but I didn't, I didn't expect him to hit floaters off drives. Like he's done that multiple times with the Pacers. He had a couple of like solid passes against the Wizards yesterday off of, off the dribble that looked a lot more jointed than they did earlier in his tenure here. Like it's only been six games, but post all-star break, 14 points, nine rebounds on pretty good shooting efficiency while getting to the line a little bit. I mean, he's been, he's been effective. Like, we can we can poo poo some things all we want, but like at the end of the day, he's just I mean, he's playing pretty well. He's been okay on like lifting to the slot, uh, or just like lifting from the corners in general and to to open himself up for shots. And he's been pretty solid at, at just functioning within the offense. No, absolutely. I mean, I I again I didn't I didn't expect to be writing sentences about him making Danny Green cuts on Twitter. Um, and some of the other stuff that he's doing. And that's what makes all this that much harder because, I mean, again, it's the contract situation. I mean, he played 19 straight minutes over the back end of last night's game, as I said. I mean, he does – he's shooting the ball. He's impressing from the outside. And sometimes, I mean, again, late, he switched out on the Ish Smith shot that Ish Smith made the pull-up two on that was kind of a crucial defensive possession. Um, Again, there's just spots where I wish that they wouldn't be switching with the – the five man who's out on the floor, but it is what it is. But um, it's just a matter of they're giving minutes to him and, and he may not be on the roster next year. And it's good that he's doing good things, especially for his own contract situation. But then you have the Goga situation where you've already opted into his contract and he scores however many points in the first half and then sits there and watches until there's a minute to go in the quarter. So um, some of that can be tough to figure. I know that I believe Rick Carlisle was asked about it and just said that Goga didn't play for a coach's decision up until that point. So um, interesting dynamic. I mean, it, it doesn't seem to me that Goga necessarily fits in with the way that they're hoping to play. Cause I mean, that just felt like a very telling moment. Like if you aren't even going to play him when he's actually hitting shots and doing things offensively, 
that just really makes me question what the long-term vision is there. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, I feel like I could say that about the team at any point, not just parts of it, but yeah, I, um, I mean, Gogus is kind of, I don't want to say he's out, but I, if I, I'm not, I think that there are still interesting things about him potentially as an NBA player, but probably not Indiana. Yeah. That's, I mean, I don't know how else to interpret it at this point. Yeah. And again, um, it's not necessarily, I mean, both of us have been critical of Goga. So it's not even necessarily me trying to be super hard on the coaching staff. It's just that if, if he finally does kind of do what you're asking and he's still not going to earn minutes quicker than that in a quarter where you're kind of quite frankly playing dreadful as a team anyways, it's just, I don't know how else to see that. Well, yeah. And I mean, just, we can say this about anything, but I mean, okay, well, once the roster is actually like healthier, like if TJ Warren's back, if Miles Turner is back, like then, okay. Jalen Smith, who's been really quite solid as a prospect is fighting for minutes and he's been like playing way more than Goga. So it's just like, yeah, there's uh, this, this team, this team, <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand them. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just, I mean, it, those are the two things that I've, I mean, that big situation last night. And then, and it's not me trying to make the situation with Tyrese and Brogdon contentious at all or trying to start up of, you know, who should be doing this or, you know, whatever. It's just, they which one is better. Just say, yeah, it. No, yeah. I'm just kidding. You, you, there can only be one. You can't talk positively. About well, I mean, I think we'd have to pick the person who can guard all five positions and also offensively play all five positions. Team. You know what? I almost had to send you a message. I mean, people will know, but when Brogdon guarded Marvin Bagley in the post up in Detroit and Marvin Bagley scored. So he can't guard all five is what you're saying. <laughs> oh but, man. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it just, it goes back to, the main overarching take, I think, as we watch the last however many games of the season is what is the rest of this season about? And I think it's about evaluating what various guys on the team can do and also getting reps for the people who are pretty much guaranteed to be here, which Tyrese Halliburton, more than anybody on the roster, is guaranteed to be here. So um, I just think that working with him to, one, be more aggressive and putting the ball in his hands to get those reps is what's going to be most valuable moving forward. Even though, like I said, I want to give credit to Malcolm Brogdon. He's played very well the last three games. It's just, you know, what is it about? I think that could be the title of this podcast. <laughs> what is the podcast about? I don't know. It changes every, every single time. So we'll figure it out. <laughs> but uh, Is there anything else you want to hit on from these two games? No, I think that that pretty much covered it unless you had something that you wanted to, add in no i think that wraps it up on the on my end as well we uh we we encapsulate encapsulate as much as we could from those couple games so um excited to see how many shots buddy healed takes tomorrow um <laughs> i'm sure it'll be interesting against the another date with karis levert he actually i don't think he's playing tomorrow as far as i'm aware he did not play last night so i don't think that he's he's dealing with a foot injury right now if i remember correctly but um Cleveland will be a tough matchup as they have been all season. I'm very excited to watch the Cavs again. Though I watch the Cavs all the time, but getting to to watch them is a nice little uh, you know, inf inflection of joy. So should be interesting. Definitely uh, exciting to watch the the two heavyweight front courts match up against one another. Um, is there anything you're looking forward to for the rest of the week? Because we have uh, we have this game and then three days off. 
Well, yeah, I mean, I, I guess we should have got into that. I believe it was said, I mean, Miles Turner shared on, I believe, Instagram that he had been back at practice running. And then I think Rick Carlisle had said that during this break between games that he was going, that Miles would be back at practice and then they would kind of evaluate what his potential um, return might be or what they're going to do for the remainder of the season. So that could be telling if, if Miles can come back and play. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I think the Cleveland game, it'd be another good one to watch on what they can do if they start switching Evan Mobley and Jared Allen out again. How are the Pacers going to attack that? Uh, well, I, I think the, the ideally Goga pull-up twos, I, I think we'll, uh, we'll, we'll drive them to victory, but we'll see what happens with that. Um, Caitlin, this was a fun time as always. To everyone listening, thank you for listening. If you haven't already, like I mentioned at the top of the show, sure to rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. We want to hear from you. We want to get your feedback. Send us any questions, comments, thoughts, uh, food-related polls that we should do in pod. I don't know. Something, something exciting. Um, Caitlin, I'll talk to you later. To everyone listening, thank you for listening. And most importantly, have a rest of your day.